You may be seated. Welcome to Grace and Peace Church. And I have not met you. My name is Vincent Hoppy. It is a pleasure to have you here worshiping with us. If you have questions, go ahead and ask me uh, afterward. There is actually, if you're a visitor, there's some lunch, like gluten-free chili and stuff like that. So if you have like sensitivities, we try to cut down the amount of dairy as well. So boom, done, got it. It's friendly for all. But let's recap. So we've been in the book of Jonah. And Jonah's a book about runaway faith. Faith that is taken off from the presence of God and is cast overboard. And, and it's through these pictures it is trying to tell and, and uh, uh, receive, tell, tell God's people to come back, repent, change your ways. You see, Jonah is trying to get away from the presence and the face of God. But grace catches him in the form of a storm that God hurls toward him. And we see these sailors. They're the ones repenting. This is whom grace visits. But then we also see Ninevites are people who are receiving God's grace. Or to, they're the ones to whom it is to go to. And Jonah's like, I don't know if I can have any part of that. And you see what is happening is, is through this we're getting a picture for the church or for God's people telling us through these irreligious, irreligious people repenting, and it's telling the religious people, you need to repent. Sometimes God uses the non-Christian to tell the Christian, wake up. And that's what's happening in this picture. Jonah claims responsibility. He's finally willing to die for the sailors. But at the same time, he would rather die than go proclaim the word for the Ninevites. That is a special type of hate, apparently, for the Ninevites. The problem with Jonah is that he needed to get God's grace out of just his head, and out of that bowling ball that he had that was thick, and he needed it to get down into his heart. He needed grace to go from the head to the heart. And so he's thrown in, waves start crashing over him, a large fish swallows Jonah. And yes, I know many of us might have been discipled by a cucumber and a tomato <laughs> that focused on this giant fish. But that isn't the point of the story. Is it far-fetched? Can it happen? Sure. It's far-fetched, but yet it can happen. Uh, there's evidence of fish swallowing sailors. There's evidence even one time that there was a giant fish that washed up on the shore, on the shore and inside, what was it? A horse! A horse was in the fish. Which reminds you then that a little tiny Mediterranean man was... Can it, can it happen? Yes. A little tiny Mediterranean man could survive in the belly of a fish for a time. Okay? That's all you need to know. But is that the point of the story? No! Okay? So fight against the cucumber and tomatoes of the world. Let's focus on God's word here. And what do we find in this prayer then by Jonah? We find the heart of biblical Christianity. And what is revealed to us, that from beginning to end, God's steadfast love, his grace, his always and forever love, is at the heart of the Christian life. From beginning to end, all of the Christian life is by grace. And so, what do we do with our world today? 
He seems to have had a reckoning, Jonah, here, that is a deconstruction of everything he thought. Especially when he was thinking like he had it together. So let me introduce you to Leonard. Leonard has a special disability. He had an accident a few years ago, which makes him have no new memories. So every five minutes he, or so, he has to make new memories. That's all his brain can handle. Of course, I'm talking about the main character, Leonard, or Lenny, from the 2000 Christopher Nolan film, Memento. You see, without a disciplined plan, Leonard goes through deconstruction every five minutes or so. He has to rethink about his interpretation of the world. And it serves as an example for all of us because we have these moments that deconstruct our understanding of the world. We have to go through deconstruction. You see, so Leonard, in order to avoid having complete deconstruction of his world, has a plan. And what is Leonard's plan? Don't trust anyone. Only trust your own handwriting, which is, you know, all capital letters slightly to the right. And important stuff goes on Polaroids, like his car. It says, my car, on a Polaroid picture. Then, he also remembers things by writing things like important stuff. Or is tattooed in reverse on his body, so that when he looks in the mirror, he can read it. Those are the important things. And that discipline saves him from the deconstruction of memory loss. So that his interpretation of the world doesn't have to start all over. And Jonah has a deconstruction moment, doesn't he? You're like, oh my gosh, he's throwing out that word deconstruction. Is this like straight up postmodern philosophy? Yes, I'm talking about postmodern philosophy. Boom, there you go. Why? Because I'm a nerd, all right? And so that's the way I think. If you think nerdy thoughts, but like I bet you Vince is thinking this today. Yes, I am probably thinking that today. Anyway, so deconstruction is a term of postmodern philosophy in which we look at our biases and our assumptions of the world and our interpretations of the world. Jonah, by God's grace, is having a deconstruction moment so that he would find out what is the basis and at the bottom of the Christian life. And what does Jonah pray? Salvation belongs to the Lord, and it comes by his steadfast love. And this happens many times a day for all of us, doesn't it? It happens in these little moments. And sometimes these big moments of deconstruction are spurred by incidents that shake us. Some of these moments may be when you, have, when you realize that your boss is actually abusive. Got to reinterpret the world, right? When you realize that your spouse isn't perfect. Hopefully you figured that one out before you got married. You know, whenever you decided to swipe, you're like, mm, not perfect, but I'm willing to go for it. So... We have these disequilibrating moments, deep moments of deconstruction. Some of us have it when we find out that spiritual leaders are corrupt, and some of them are even abusive. When we find out that the Bible doesn't agree with my view of the world, we have to reinterpret things and think about it. What about when you lose someone? You lose a friend. A loved one dies. You know, even if you're a kid, what happens when you lose your dog? 
What happens when you get a cancer diagnosis? What happens when everything you ever dreamed of, the doctor says it isn't even possible? Think about the upheaval that we've had in politics, a pandemic, a pandemic gone political. We've got to reinterpret the world all the time. And think about our sin. What happens whenever our sin is brought out into the light? When we're confronted with it, when we're caught red-handed, when our ears burn, when we get a lump in our throat, when it feels like we're punched in the stomach. You see, we live in this merit-oriented world, and we have this conception like everything, I need to earn it, I need to perform. And suddenly, whenever you're confronted with your sin, you realize, I am not, I don't have it together. I need to have a reinterpretation of this world. And what interpretation is going to give me some bearing and some anchor into this world? And Jonah is telling us it is the steadfast love of the Lord that is at the bottom, down with me at the pit while I am dying. Because death is the greatest deconstruction, and that's where he is. His entire life is uprooted. And what does he find but God's grace? I remember the moment of deconstruction for me. As a little kid, you kind of go through this moment. I was a junior in high school. It was uh, an afternoon in the spring semester. My mother calls me in the morning and she says, I need a ride to go catch the airport shuttle. I could tell by her voice she was hiding something. And it wasn't just going to be a quick momentary flight. She had moved out when I was in middle school. My dad was an abusive alcoholic, but still I still had this idea in my mind that maybe if I worked hard enough, or if I was a good enough kid, or if I played my role right, maybe my mom and dad would get back together. But when I was hearing her voice, I was realizing something. I was realizing that this was the end. That my life as I knew it, with my wonderful nuclear family, was definitely coming to an end. And so, of course, on that dusty, windy day in New Mexico, of course it's dusty and windy because New Mexico is dusty and windy. I got in my vehicle, ditched class because I'm Vincent Hoppy and that's what I do. I don't go to class. I just, I, it was high school. I was like, I don't really need this. And so I, you know, picked up my mom. She's like, can I, can you, I don't know what my mom was thinking. Like, hey, hey, can you pick me up and give me a ride? Mom, I have school. No, never mind, mom, cool. You let me ditch? Awesome. So anyway, I picked her up and I go. And as she says goodbye, I realized what was happening. Her goodbye was the deconstruction of a world I knew, and a world I dreamed of, a world I wanted. My childhood was ending. But it was God's grace that was still there. I didn't know it at a time. The next semester, I would have a high school biology teacher, the most respected man in our entire school, start to upend my world. And I swear it was the Holy Spirit giving me the dagger in the heart because he says this. He says, evolution. Yeah, it, it can explain some of the natural processes in the world. That's fine. But more than that, evolution can't possibly give you a justification for living. 
Can't tell you what the purpose of your life is. Can't tell you what love is. And at the moment, I'm sitting there like a dissected frog, feeling like everything's, everyone's looking at my organs. And I'm saying, saying to myself, well, I can't possibly, on the basis of naturalistic causes, say why I should be mad at my dad because he's an alcoholic and he's a drunk and he ruined his entire life and he's ruining my life. And then why am I mad at my mom for leaving me here with him? At a deconstructing moment right there in high school biology class. But what was in the end? It was God's grace. You see, we all like Jonah in our questions and interpretations of everything. We need to pull out the Polaroid pictures. We need to check out the tattoos on our body and the tattoos on our Lord Jesus Christ and his nail-scarred hands and realize that at the deepest moments of deconstruction, what can we trust in? It's never-ending never giving up, always and forever, steadfast love of the Lord who is committed to rescuing his people at all costs. And that will shape your interpretation of everything. And so what do we learn? That the Christian life is by grace. Jonah says, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope in steadfast love. And steadfast love is that covenantal faithfulness that God has committed himself to a people. And he will see to it that he will execute the promises that he had set forth. That he will do it. It is in the context of a relationship. And so when God is described as loving, it is steadfast love. Because the Hebrew word has said, it is that always, forever love for you, at great expense to himself. So the Christian life is by grace, and grace is for the needy, and grace saves. So grace is for the needy, and grace saves. I called out, Jonah says. In the moments of pain that we experience in life, where do we turn? You know, there's that old adage, there are no atheists in foxholes. Why do people say that? Meaning that in the times of desperation, we're all turning to a God of sorts. Something to give us a bearing or a grounding in our world. We are looking for something to give us our identity, to give us substance. And Jonah goes back to the, one, uh, to the one whose presence he fled. By prayer, he's relationally coming back. He calls to the Lord, his God. And he goes and he prays. He's driven to prayer into that presence. Jonah is a complicated character. Like any Christian, like you and me, sinner and saint, all at once. But he is needy, and grace comes to the needy, meaning if you're going to live the Christian life, you have to be needy. In the Christian life, the thing that you most desperately need is to be needy, because grace comes to the needy. Throughout the book, it mentions that Jonah's going down. It is a picture of where his sin is taking us. He went down to Joppa. He went down into the boat. And now he says, out of my distress, out of the belly of Sheol, which is the lowest of the low, apart from God, in the place of the dead. The waters closed over me. I went down to the land, saying that he is in the dungeon of death. 
forever. Yet, God's grace comes. And he says, you brought my life from the pit. Here, Jonah, in his prayer, paints the picture of a complete spiritual inability to rescue himself. It is as Paul says to the Ephesians, you were dead in the trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us, even, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. How desperate is your situation? Paul says, you are dead. Dead. Not like a little bit dead. Like dead. Like terminal. Out. Cold. Flatline. Nothing. Nothing's happening. And what dead person raises himself to life? Zero. That's our state. That's how needy you are. And, how, and who does Jonah say, though, is, is orchestrating it all? Jonah says it's God. It is God. He says, you cast me into the deep. All your waves and billows pass over me. I am driven from your sight. So the very person to whom he is praying is the one to whom Jonah, or who brought Jonah to his knees. And why? Because of God's steadfast love. God knows that what you need is need. God knows that what you need is need to receive him and his grace. And so he brings him to his knees through the storm, through being thrown into the waves, and then he rescues him by sending this fish. Living the Christian life looks a lot like it did at the beginning of the Christian life. When you came into the Christian life, you were desperate in need. You were poor of spirit. You were in poverty. And the rest of the Christian life is the continual loss of things in your hands. All the false saviors. It looks like growing and acknowledging your need and denying your self-sufficiency and embracing God dependency. It is turning from the false saviors of comfort, having my happiness, turning from the false saviors of moralism, the false saviors of adventure, the false saviors of romance, the false saviors of having the best dating profile in human recorded history because I can look good on this app, given the right filter, and... The Christian life may be painful, though. Why? Because it's a lot like going to the gym. No pain, no gain. The Christian life is sometimes giving up really good things in order that you may receive the best thing. It may be saying no to certain dreams, certain relationships, in order to have the best thing. And that is God's grace in Jesus Christ. It's the church, though, is a community of the needy. You are together in this. You see, all of us are needy. We are people who readily identify that we can't live the life of self-sufficiency. Even after becoming a Christian, we must live in the assisted living facility of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because as Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The Christian life 
is one that we grow in our understanding of God's holiness, his love, his perfection, his control of all things, his good judgments, his justice. And then at the same time, we grow in understanding how deceptive we are, how deceived we are, how sinful we are, how corrupt every one of our faculties are. And so at the time that we realize God's holiness and we see our depravity, and in between we see our need, and we see God's grace. So the Christian life is the continual dependence and need of the cross of Jesus Christ. And every day a mature Christian realizes something. The Christian who is maturing realizes that God's grace grows bigger and his cross grows bigger because you realize how sinful you are and how holy God is. And you realize his steadfast love the person of Jesus Christ bridges those two things. So when we get that at the heart, when we understand our need, we become approachable in our sin. We realize, well, maybe I could actually be wrong. We don't have to be defensive. We don't even have to be perfect all the time. Why? Because the perfect one died defenseless for us. As a kid, do you know what that means? You can ask mom and dad for help. You don't have to hide. You don't have to hide. You can ask your friends for help. You know what, as an adult, you can ask the dumb question in church, in the community. Well, not right now. Don't ask me the dumb question right now. Ask me the dumb question later, okay? Cool. That's what that means. Because we're all there. We don't need to put up pretenses and errors because we all know that we need to come to Jesus. That we have need. But that is exactly what so many of us lack. Jonah's brought to an end of himself so that he could feel and acknowledge his need. What chance does he have against the waves of the ocean in the chaos of the storm? Zero. He needs God to save him. He doesn't need God to throw him a life preserver. No, he needs God to come in and get his stupid head out of the ocean of his own despair and death. And that's what every one of us needs. Because we can't swim to shore. My little tiny arms cannot save myself. If you see me swim, you swear that I'm going to die at any moment. Okay? And so it is spiritually with me. But grace comes to the needy and grace saves. God is the actor. Jonah says, he answered me. He answered me in order for I to have life when I was despairing, when I was, it was all over. He answered me. Before God, only God can save you. Jonah prays, you brought my life from the pit. Beyond that, Jonah says this, yet I will look, or I shall look to your holy temple. The temple was where the presence of God was. And in order to come into his presence, there needed to be sacrifice. There needed to be blood to cover over the offenses that someone would make. And for the people. And it means this, in order to have what you most desperately need, 
for your life to work, for your life to be meant to, to, for it to be as it was meant to be, for you to have eternal life, real life, real human life. It requires sacrifice. It requires the steadfast love of the Lord and sacrifice. And God gave this picture in the temple. Saying, what you most desperately need is my presence and me to dwell with you. But your sin keeps me apart from you. Your sin keeps us apart. But he will make a way. And his steadfast love is pictured in these sacrifices. Which means this. Either the steadfast love of the Lord and his blood will cover you. So you may have the presence of God forever. Or it will be your blood. Why? Because they deserved it? No. It's because he is merciful and gracious and he loves them. Because he has a never-ending, always and forever love. And so, Jonah says, those who pay regard to vain idols... Which means those who trust in anything else but the saving work and saving grace of God, His righteousness for me, my, He takes my badness and gives me His goodness so that I can enjoy His goodness forever. Only by that can I be saved. No amount of anything in this world can possibly save us. And so Jonah is right. He says like the psalmist, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I reject all the other false comforts, false saviors in the world. Grace starts and sustains the Christian life. Of course, some good theological nerds right now are like, tell me how that works, homie. And of course it goes like this. I subscribe uh, to the Westminster Confed Shorter Catechism. So, you know, your Christian life starts with God justifying you, declaring you forensically righteous before Him. And how does that work? Well, Shorter Catechism, question 33. What is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace, whereby all our sins are forgiven, and we are accepted as righteous only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. The Christian life starts by being approved before God, Validated and vindicated only by the righteousness of Jesus Christ for us. He stands before his people and his resume is examined so you can be accepted. Now we're like, okay, now how does he finish this? Question 35, what is sanctification? Sanctification is a work of God's free grace. Notice that it says free grace two times. Whereby we are renewed in the whole man or the whole person after the likeness of God and enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. And so, what does that mean, grace saves? It means this. You start with God's grace and you end with God's grace. You get into the covenant in the presence of God by God's grace. And you stay in the covenant and presence of God by God's grace. It means 
that when you take your first breath as a Christian, you are brought in by God's grace. And when you open your eyes in the resurrection and see him with eyes truly, it is by God's grace. And so grace saves. Notice where he gets this instinct from. Notice how it sounds a lot like Psalm 118 or Psalm 42. It is because Jonah is a worshiper at the heart. And he knows that the deepest interpretation that he needs is the one that he has grown up with his entire life. He knows at the bottom of everything is God's steadfast love. And he knows these formulations are the instinct. And so he goes for it and he prays this prayer of desperation. And everything. Everything is exposed in the midst of this deconstruction. And what does he believe? What are his photographs? What's tattooed on his heart? What steadies him in the midst of deconstruction of his life? The steadfast love of God. And what determines that? It is always the company that you keep. We grow in our understanding of the world by the community of interpretation we keep and we stay with. The practices we practice. The habits, the stories that we surround ourselves with. In Christian worship, one of the things that we see is that God has made it a way for us to tell the story of God over and over again to ourselves. More than that. We come into his presence, called by his initiation through his word. We come into his presence. We sing his glories. Then we confess our sins. And what have we received before we have even counted them all before him? That he forgives us in Jesus Christ. And we rehearse the story every week. And we partake of his broken body. We drink of his blood. Why? Because that's the life we need. This is life as we have always wanted it. And we inhabit and live in this story. And this is the interpretation of the world that we have had from the beginning. You see, what's your interpretation when it hits the fan? If you're a non-Christian, I beg you to think about that. What is steadying you in those moments? If your interpretation and formulation of the world is dominated by hours of binge-watching The Bachelor and Bachelorette, then you will find this to be true about your life. You guys, you guys look at me like The Bachelor and Bachelorette. I know y'all are watching it. Why? Because I watch it, okay? Whatever. Okay? You will realize this, whatever hits the fan. You will think that you're not getting the rose because you weren't good enough. Or maybe because he was so stupid, he just can't see the good that was in front of him. And that's the way we will interpret the world. So we will either shame ourselves or say that this person's ridiculous. But any love, any love of man or woman can only point you to what your heart really truly desires. You are judged on the basis of Jesus' performance. And that's what you need most. And what, you, and what you get is the presence of God when you're judged like that. 
See, God initiates not out of obligation, it's unconditional. Christian theology is one where God is moved by his own good pleasure. He initiates creation and redemption out of his own good pleasure. Hence, Jonah prays, salvation, beginning to end, belongs to the Lord. It means from the time you take that first breath, and until you see him, it's all by grace. And it works slowly, though. A lot like oak trees. Notice Jonah hasn't gotten it and he doesn't get it until the, even in the end. It's because God has to work in his people. And it's like organic growth. Uh, oak trees, live oak trees. There was a lot of them at New Mexico State University. They kind of lined this one little area of the, of the campus. And I would always walk down there in the fall. It turned beautiful orange and red. And then they die and become brown and stay there. And a lot of our lives is like an oak tree. And the Christian life is like that oak tree. You see, you don't get new life until it has pushed out the old dead ones. And so all those little false saviors are little terrible habits are being pushed out by God's gracious love. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is the power of God working in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Ona Judge. Ona is what she was called. She was a slave owned by the Washingtons, George and Martha. She was prized and was at every party, dressed in fine clothes, eating the finest foods. But she was a slave. She, along with the help of the governor of New Hampshire, absconded and fled to, in the middle of the night to the north with absolutely nothing. She lost all the fine dresses, being cared for, all the comforts and luxuries that she had with the Washingtons. And before she died, she was interviewed and asked, if you could do it all over again, Oni, would you trade it? And she's like, no. Because in my freedom, have my Bible and I can read the word of God and there I know he loves me there she experienced the steadfast love of the Lord and his presence and it was better than any luxury any pseudo happiness that we could have in this world and that love that steadfast love frees her from all false saviors, false lovers, because in the word of God, she was presented with a great love letter in person of Jesus Christ to his people. Jesus is the disequilibrating force, the deconstructing force of all our preconceptions and turns the heart of Christianity onto himself. Jesus becomes the center of all interpretation for the Christian. Jesus is God's grace, God's salvation, God's steadfast love with skin on coming to hug you and get you. He comes to the needy and he saves them. Jesus took the distance from God so you don't have to ever feel distant. Jesus took the displeasure from God so you would always have his smile. Jesus was barred from God's presence so that you could feel him closer than your skin. Jesus was shamed so you never have to hide. Jesus was made guilty so you could be justified. Jesus died so we can live. Life is by grace. And grace is for the needy. 
that grace saves because Jesus came for the needy and Jesus saves. Let us pray. Our great God and Lord, the true caretaker of our souls, the one who will never give up on us even though we hide in the dark and are despairing, even though we believe that at times our sins, when they are found out, will destroy us. You love us till the end, and you were destroyed for us. That is your steadfast love. Let us look upon that when the times of deconstruction happen, when the storms of life rock us to and fro. May we, your people, have the interpretation that you have given us in the Lord Jesus Christ to put everything into context, and to turn this upside-down world right-side up again. Help us to fly to Him. Help us now to receive You, Lord Jesus Christ, as the steadfast love of God and His broken bread and poured out cup. In Christ's name, Amen. <laughs>